Hello and welcome to How Healthcare Happens. My name's Bryn Kentish. This is the 11th episode in our COVID-19 series. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Chris Fegan. Chris is the Clinical Director of Research and Development at Cardiff and Vale University Health Board. We recorded this episode on the 19th of May 2020, and we discussed the changes to the way research is carried out as a result of COVID-19, the details of some of the ongoing studies in Cardiff and Vale University Health Board, and some of the noted outcomes so far, and how COVID-19 is impacting on research and development in other areas of healthcare. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, Chris. How are you? Uh, I'm well, thanks. Bring yourself? Yes. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. It's been quite a nice week, really. It's, it's... Are you working from home or are you in work or is it a bit of both? I'm I'm working from home. I, I'm asthmatic, so I've been working from home since mid-March. I'm lucky mm-hmm. that I have been able to do that as part of my role. You know, I've got all the equipment. I can do more or less everything I could in the office here at home. Um, it, looks, it looks like you've been painting your back wall there. That's nice and white. The shelves are all clear. You know, it, so good it, to see that being done. I won't turn this camera around because uh, I'm in, in a room that's... Uh, a bit of a mess at the moment me and my partner we had like a clear out of all the things that we kind of wanted to get rid of like Mm. two or three days before the lockdown and now this room is just filled with rubbish bags full of clothes to go to the salvation army (laughs) (laughs) it's good for the acoustics yeah my my wife's been in in uh, lockdown and she's been clearing out the house and Every time I go to the garage, there's more black bags there. And of course, council limit how many black bags you can take. So I can see my first job when I get freedom is straight to the tip, which is wonderful. But when I ask what's in the bag, I'm told I don't need to know. (laughs) Yeah, so I suspect a lot of it's my stuff, but yeah, never mind. Right, let's get down to the topic at hand, and that is the Mm. Clinical Research Facility at Cardiff and Vale University Health Board. So you're the Director of Research and Development, and Mm. I was hoping that you'd be able to begin today's conversation by telling me a little bit about what the Clinical Research Facility does, and what's your role within it? So as R&D Director, I'm responsible for all clinical trials occurring anywhere in the health board to make sure they're safe, they're fit for purpose, we can actually do them well, come out with correct answer to inform future decisions. There's two elements to my job. One is the regulatory side, the other side is what's called the delivery side, i.e. delivering the trials with research nurses, research officers, administrators, to help oil the wheels and make sure the studies are, are delivered properly. There's two arms to the delivery side. One is a team which actually work out in the hospital, in the wards, in the outpatients, uh, doing trials, uh, mostly for patients who are not uh, too critically ill, or there's a big team on ITU working through this COVID session. And then we have the clinical research facility where patients are brought to that area for specialist type studies. There's basically three types of studies. There's phase one, which is new drugs, some of which have never been given to humans before. There's phase two, which have been given to humans before, but people are trying to work out the best dose or the best way to use that drug. And then there's phase three, where you're comparing that drug with what is the standard drug used in that area or for that condition. And the clinical research facility specializes in early phase, phase one studies, very novel agents, 
often the first time anyone on planet Earth has received a drug. Those studies happen on the clinical research facility. And how has the function of the facility changed as a result of COVID-19? Basically, because the patients are on the wards and because of the safety elements around moving patients around the hospital and bringing patients to the CRF, a lot more of the staff have actually gone out to the areas where the COVID patients are. So, for example, we've had clinical research facility nurses helping out on the ITU, helping out on the general wards and doing whatever is necessary, A, for the clinical benefit of patients in general, but also that we can undertake these clinical trials uh, that we're undertaking. Uh, we've opened over 30 trials in Cardiff, about 10 of them involving new drugs uh, at the moment. And they range from patients who are really not that ill, but can we make them better quicker, get them out of hospital quicker, to patients who really have exhausted all existing therapies open to them. And we're trying what people regard as really quite experimental things on them. For those patients that are in that condition, how do you get consent from them to take part in these trials? For those patients who are able, compass mentis, fully understand it's the same traditional way of written consent. You explain the patient uh, about the study, they have what's called a patient information sheet, I have a read-through discussed with their family, uh, obviously on the phone now, not in person is normal because obviously we restricted visitors. You answer any questions the patient may have and they sign the piece of paper. It's caused a bit of problems because in the COVID areas, we don't like things leaving that area, such as bits of paper. So we've had to devise ways of putting that uh, consent form in an envelope, sealing it up, leaving it for seven days in case it's got contaminated before opening it. But for more seriously ill patients, those patients are unable to give consent, either because they're confused or in the case of I2, they may be ventilated and unable to give consent. There's basically two mechanisms. There, There is professional consent where the doctor looking after the patient decides that actually they think it's in the patient's best interest to be in the study. And then when the patient regains capacity to give consent, we discuss with the patient what's happened, the data we collected, what we've done, and we get the agreement of the patient then. We don't use that often. The preferred method for those patients who cannot give consent is actually to speak to the families at home, speak to the next of kin, their loved ones, explain what the study is and ask them, uh, would your partner, your family member, whoever, what would you think they would say if offered the study, if they were there and able to give consent? This is always very, very difficult, especially in this situation with COVID, because patients can't come in. Quite often we use that in ITU, road traffic accidents, people with heart attack to arrive unconscious, but then you have the family in front of them. You can talk to the family, explain and have more opportunities to ask questions. With the COVID situation, it's all done by phone and that's a lot more impersonal and much more difficult for family members to say yes or no. In reality, virtually all people say yes. They know just how ill their partners, their loved ones are and they know that we're trying absolutely everything we can to give them the best possible care both inside the trial and outside a trial. So usually it's not an issue, but occasionally there are issues. It's basically people who live alone, maybe their contact with their next of kin isn't as strong as it was before they became ill. So the, the people who are, we're talking to don't feel they have the right to say what that person would 
would actually want. And that's often when we use what we call professional consent. And quite often you say to the loved one or the family member, do you think they would object to this? Do you think they would have any objections with what we're planning to do? Necessarily when the patient regains capacity, we discuss it again with them uh, and make sure they are happy with what was done. And for those patients who have the ability to give their own consent, do they normally agree to it or are they often reticent to be entered into these trials? If you take normal times, uh, I would imagine 90% plus patients say yes to a trial. You explain it to them. You explain that there's a standard of care. You explain what that is, what their chance of success is in terms of that, be that wound infection, uh, days in hospital, whatever. You explain the new therapy, what you hope that's going to achieve. You obviously explain there's no guarantees uh, with this, uh, but the study has gone through a strict regulatory process through research ethics and R&D approved by the health board. We think it's a good study. We think it has a chance of success. We think it's safe for the patient. So most patients in reality say yes. In the COVID situation, there's a lot of influence about the news. People are sat at home watching the telly, certainly early on, the government brief. So early on, when they heard about the recovery study, it's been our main study, through the COVID epidemic, people ringing us up asking whether their loved ones, their partners, their families in the study or not, and almost demanding the study. So it's been a lot more back and forward flow between patients, their loved ones, and often what we normally get. Normally it's a very straightforward discussion, whereas now people are getting daily updates, people are watching the news every day, the world's become a very small place, Twitter, has all sorts of things. In the last week, there's been stores about the vaccine study. There's been stores about mouthwash. There's been stores about hydroxychloroquine. And people take those on board. But you know, we understand fully all everybody wants, us and the relatives and loved ones, is the very best for the patient. And that is the driving and the only thing that really matters uh, in all the discussions. If a patient declines, that's, that's perfectly acceptable and they get their standard of care to the best of our abilities, they would anyway. But we do see ourselves in Cardiff and Bailey trying to trailblaze with new therapies, both assisting other people, their studies, the national studies, the studies promoted by Welsh government and the UK government. And we cherry pick what we think are the very best of the other studies which are on offer. There are endless studies on offer. We're getting offered one or two clinical trials a day. And you can't do them all. You have to cherry pick which you think are the best for your clientele and have the best chance of working and the ones you think you're most able to do. Right. Yeah, because you said there are around 30 trials just related to COVID-19 ongoing at the health board at the moment. Recovery is the name of one that you mentioned, which is one of the bigger ones. Can you tell me a bit more about what is involved in these types of trials and what you're hoping to find? So if we take the the drug trials, which recovery is, there's no specific treatments for COVID-19 that are shown to improve survival. Uh, There was a study with a drug called remdesivir, which has been shown to shorten the hospital stay. It's an antiviral agent. We have another study using that agent in ITU for those patients if it improves outcomes there. So basically the aims of the drug studies are to improve survival, shorten stay, reduce organ damage because 
unlike the common flu, what we're seeing is a lot more problems with thrombosis, which can occur anywhere in the body with kidney failure. It's very, very different from the seasonal flu. So some of the studies are aimed at actually killing the virus. Some studies are aimed at preventing thrombosis. Some studies are aimed at preventing the inflammatory response, which seems to be a big, big part of this. So when we're looking at our studies, we're looking at trying to target those three areas for the patient. At the moment, we're only using studies on their own, sorry, drugs on their own. Ideally, may want to combine these, but we've only had the pandemic here in the UK for about seven weeks. So the combination studies haven't arrived yet, but there's certainly talk of them. So we've done antiviral studies. A lot of the effort uh, in recovery is based on antivirals using what are called repurposed drugs, which have activity in the laboratory against the COVID-19 virus. Recovery also had an anti-inflammatory arm with a thing called dexamethasone, it's a steroid. And then later on, it added a new arm in, which is inhibiting a, a cytokine called interleukin-6, which is thought to be part of an inflammatory reaction. That came along later, is what we call the second randomization. So if the patient's not thriving, what they get randomized to first, then actually you can randomize again and see whether uh, as a drug called tocilizumab actually works or not. And we've done that in three patients and the two patients who received it actually have done very, very well. The one patient who hasn't has been more slowly in improving uh, in care. They got what's called standard of care. They weren't randomized that because in all studies, you need what's called a control arm. Those people who would have got what they would have got anyway. And we've cherry picked the sort of studies based on the sort of patients. We have a study opening called Atomic, which is aimed at patients who are going home from A&E. They're not admitted, so they're mild. But again, with COVID-19, we've noticed some people are mild to start with, suddenly deteriorate when, when at home. So we've got a study with a drug called azithromycin to see if that can reduce the severity and chance of, of it getting worse later on. We're going to have studies like recovery more aimed at those people who are fairly well when first admitted. We have other studies with a combination of anti-inflammatory, antiviral agents, REMAP-CAP, which is being run on ITU, uh, which is aimed at those more severely ill people and maybe combining drugs together uh, to make them better. What's happened UK-wide is because the whole inflammatory process involves proteins, different types of cells. There's a whole host of different agents one can try. And there's a system being set up across the UK to introduce these drugs into trials. And it's almost a back a winner idea. You try something in 50 patients in the UK. If it doesn't work, you go on to the next 50 patients with a different agent and a different study. So it's very, very rapid, the turnover studies and the number of agents coming through. It's absolutely unprecedented. Uh, in my 30 years of doing clinical trials. Yes, and that kind of leads me on to my next question, which is around the timescales that these studies take. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in my head, I imagine that prior to COVID, they would have taken years perhaps to get a, a drug from a research and development phase to make it available for the public. What sort of timescales are we looking at for COVID trials? Yeah, so what Normally, you're absolutely right. A normal study, what's called first in man, phase one, right through to phase three, when you compare it with standard care and license it, and it goes through nice, that typically takes three to five years. Here, we don't have three to five years. So what's happened is there's light touch regulation. 
The amount of data collected in these studies is a lot less. What we're looking at key, key endpoints, such as survival, discharge rates, how long on a ventilator, those sort of things we're looking at. So a lot less assessments done. But what you're trying to do is identify which the winners are, and then we can do the more finessing and find out how they're working, is the dose right, et cetera, later on. So here the whole aim is to try and get the study open and closed in a matter of four to six weeks. The recovery study recruited 10,000 people in six weeks. We, it would take about a month to get the actual data together, collated and read out. But this is absolutely unprecedented uh, and it's been a national effort. On the other side, what we've had as well some more experimental agents and they're more the severe end of patients because there's two elements to this. It's, it's one thing catching COVID, it's another thing being very ill and dying from it. We may not be able to stop people catching it, that'll be the aim of vaccines down the line. But in the short term, the aim is to stop people dying from it and using these therapeutics. And I've no doubt now that we've got drugs coming through which will do exactly that. We've actually had one of those in Cardiff and Vale that we've been using on a compassionate use programme that we're looking to actually move into a clinical trial. And that is purely aimed at the inflammatory end of the spectrum. It doesn't kill the virus at all. So without breaking any confidentiality, are you able to tell me about some of the results that you've seen so far? A bit earlier, you mentioned those two patients that had responded well to, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the name of the... Elizabeth. So the main recovery study is comparing uh, four different agents. They all, to me, seem very similar. There's not obviously from the... We put 155 patients in the study... There's no obvious readout that they're doing particularly well. But the nature of the agencies, you think they, even if they work, it'll be a slow improvement, not a fast improvement, because they're aimed really at killing the virus. The interleukin 6 tocilizumab is a different kettle of fish. It's aimed at actually stopping inflammation. And you can usually tell that within three to five days. You can do that through blood tests, uh, a simple test we all do every day in hospital anyway, thing called C-reactive protein. That will rapidly drop in these patients who respond. So in the two patients who were randomised to that, and we know what they were randomised to, there's no blinding, which means neither we saw the patients. No, we know what the patients are getting. You could see within a matter of days, the blood results were improving, and that was subsequently followed by a clinical improvement in the patient. In the other study, there's not really a study compassionate use programme, uh, where we used a drug, we're the only people in the world to have this particular drug. Uh, the first two patients it was used on were on ITU. One had been ventilated 25 days. Uh, the other patient had been ventilated a bit shorter. But all other previous treatment had failed. And we really were looking at only one outcome. Uh, both patients got the drug and both patients are now off ITU They've been extubated and they're back on the wards recovering. We've given it to three other patients since then. One of those is off ITU. One is being a bit slower in improving uh, because I had lots of other comorbidities, which would mean you would expect them to go slower. And we gave it to a fifth patient last weekend. So four out of four responding, three out of four, we really were reaching the end of our therapeutic options. And we'll begin to really fear about the outcome. Uh, three or four of those who have left ITU 
quite amazing. We wanted to enter a clinical study. We we're about to report that uh, in the world literature. That's really incredible, isn't it? And I suppose just for the sake of anyone listening in the future, we should just clarify that we're having this conversation on the 19th of May, 2020, the day before clinical trial day, I think is tomorrow, yeah. isn't it? International oh, Clinical Trials Day. Uh, and we are one of the, the biggest research units uh, in Britain, we're certainly the biggest in Wales. We do a lot of these sort of studies because what a lot of people don't appreciate is today's standard of care was yesterday's research. Nothing, very little happens by chance in medicine and nursing. Everything is evidence-based. When you say evidence-based, that means it's undergone a study. And that's the way we move forward with healthcare, uh, nudging forward. I'm a cancer doctor by, uh, by trade, uh, and we've improved cancer outlooks by various drug trials over the last 30 years, better agents, combining a better understanding of cancer with the better drugs aimed targeting what we know about cancer that's happened throughout critical care cardiology respiratory you name it it's all underpinned by clinical trials uh, and that's why it's a world day everyone coming together on international clinical trials day uh, really to remind everybody this is still work in progress we, we we still haven't got lots of cures for lots of conditions we haven't got cures which are without toxicities this is a job which is very much ongoing day in, day out throughout all hospitals in the UK. And we're very proud of what we do in Cardiff. Yeah, and rightly so. I mean, just on a personal level, both me and my partner have close family members who have been affected by different forms of cancer. And luckily, both of these people were put on clinical trials and you know, despite quite serious diagnoses, they responded really well to, to the point at which it's, I mean, for want of a better phrase, I'd say a medical miracle. So I, I can attest to that on an anecdotal level, 100%. I'm a cancer doctor, but some of the treatments coming through are not chemotherapy. So they don't have the toxicities of chemotherapy. We're now moving out of the chemotherapy era into treatments that will cure people which are not chemotherapy. The toxicity is phenomenally less. But all that's in clinical trials. It's all evidence-based. The way patients are managed now, surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, etc. that multidisciplinary team that comes into one, one patient, individual patient's care pathway, is all underpinned by basic research across the whole specialties, surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and it really does represent, maybe this might be an overstatement, but it, it's a you're offering a light at the end of the tunnel as far I mean as far as COVID-19 is concerned the only way it's ever going to be treated and you know potentially cured is through the results of these types of trials. Yeah and I think the agents being tested now have a real real chance of certainly improving survival and reducing the severity of the disease. Only a vaccine will stop people getting it um, but if in the meantime we can come up with therapeutics that stop people being ill with it, and I think we're getting there, and I really do hope in the next two, three months we have made big progress and our success on critical care with these patients with this very experimental drug to me tells me we can win. We can turn this disease round and turn it into something patients can survive with, even those patients at the very severest end of the spectrum with, with the illness. We, we can do it. I have no doubt about that. 
one of the things which is different about this than usual trials is we're working on the background of a country lockdown and economic impact of a negative nature. Uh, and of course, that influences potentially the much bigger political and economic overlay going on in what is specifically a healthcare issue. We talk about a virus that infects and kills people. Never before have we had so many other things impacting on the way healthcare is being delivered, the way trials are being conducted, the way data is being analysed. If you take three people, one is four foot 11, one is five foot six and one is six foot, you know, your average height of people is five foot six if you take just the three. That may not be what you would get if you took a, a thousand people or 10,000 people and did their heights. So when people talk about we follow the science, the science is only as good as how many data points you have in it. And one of the problems you've had in the UK is we don't know how many people in the community have actually had the disease and are immune. And that's partly because we haven't had a test that's accurate enough that will it tell if they're immune or not? Can it tell COVID-19 from other coronaviruses we get every year? Have we actually been out there and done the numbers? These things are only just started. So we're working in the background and we don't really know what it's like out there. You do know that with cancer, for example, cancer studies, you know how many breast cancers you get a year on average, how many colon cancers, how many people present early, how many people present late. We have a lot more information, normally in clinical trials. Uh, I mentioned cancer, strange to diabetes, hypertension, obesity, whatever. Here, we don't have that background information at all. And some of the data that's come out about ethnic groups and age, we didn't really see that ethnic signal in China. The same infections affect people differently. So we're learning as we go along uh, and trying to gather more and more knowledge which you're trying to apply to the clinical trials and maybe for different groups of people who, uh, who come into hospital. As you know, the discussion with children is children don't really get COVID-19. In the last fortnight, we've heard about, yes, but some of those who do, that tiny number who do, have a really marked inflammatory response to it called Kawasaki's disease uh, or Kawasaki-like disease, which is a really, really serious condition in children normally we didn't know about that four weeks ago, and we're having to try and react, devise treatments, think of studies, uh, and be very quick about it. Time is not on our side. And with that in mind, and the other diseases that you mentioned when you were explaining that, I was wondering how COVID-19 has impacted your other work. Has it had a negative impact? Has has that work had to be shelved or even abandoned? Because there are other diseases. You know, people are still getting cancer. People are still getting, a, you know, a whole host of other things. Yeah. So when the, when the pandemic first looked like it was going to hit the UK in the way we thought it, it might, the first thing we had to do really is all those patients in trials who were dependent on the drugs they were getting, either to stay alive or get better. So all the cancer studies, some of the heart studies, some of the other therapeutic studies. And the first thing we had to do is risk assess, can we carry on delivering that treatment through the pandemic? And on the whole, we have. We've had to find ways of carrying on giving those treatments because those patients are dependent on those treatments. It has had a negative effect though, because we virtually closed down admitting new patients into these studies. You know, to weigh up the risk of the delay in starting the study versus the risk 
of COVID-19 if they came into the hospital on some of those worst weeks that we saw here, what was the risk to them? Because a cancer patient getting COVID-19, that may well be the end of the, of the story for that particular individual. So where we can delay safely, not desirably, but safely, we've tried to, but there are probably one or two individuals who haven't presented to hospital because they're worried about the COVID-19 or they're in a bit of denial about their symptoms or they can't see their GPs easily as they would have done or they would have turned up in A&E. 25% of all cancers are diagnosed in A&E in the UK. They haven't come to A&E because they're scared of, of what may be here. Now as we're moving out, it's gone a lot quieter, the number of infections. We're looking at how we can re-engage with that group of patients because we know they're still getting cancer. We know they're still having ischemic heart disease, um, transient ischemic attacks that may lead to stroke. These things haven't gone away. And one of the real challenges for the hospital is how can we manage the COVID, maybe with further spikes, but carry on our routine work, which a big part of our routine work is clinical studies for all these patients who need better treatments. Really fascinating. Thank you so much, Chris. Just as a last question, I was hoping to ask, if you don't mind, how on a personal level you've been coping with the pandemic Obviously, it's changed your work dramatically, but how are you finding things alongside and outside of work? I probably work seven days a week, doing bits and pieces, weekends, nights, it's all the same. I love my job, uh, and it's not like a job, it's just something you do. It's a, it's a real joy. Uh, it was hard work at the beginning. There were so many studies to open up. Really, really a large, large, large number. And, you know, life's depending on You just have to work your way through the paperwork. Um I've got the situation, I have my daughter at home, she usually lives away, but uh, she was sent home to work, so she came to join mum and dad, that's a joy. Uh, my wife's actually in lockdown herself, she's uh, on medication, which makes her vulnerable. So when I go home at night, uh, the first thing you have to do is change all your clothes, have a proper clean. Uh, I'm a, a bit of a gardener, I relax in the garden. I don't quite talk to my plants, but they certainly help in that uh, clearing your head about things. Uh, I do a lot of seedlings, uh, which is just as well this year, because you're going to get to the garden centre. Uh, but I'm well known for uh, collecting seeds from anywhere I go. I usually have a pocket full of seeds and a few bags. I collect as one the, through the countryside, through stately homes. You know, I'm helping them deadhead, is really what I'm doing. I'm not stealing seeds, I'm helping them deadhead properly, because they've been remiss. So I do a lot of seedlings, I have about 3,000 seedlings. So I spend a lot of time in the garden, and usually I'm not in the garden doing that. I'm usually doing something related to work. As I say, it's not like work. It's, uh, it's a joy of joy. And at this time, everyone's pulled together. A lot of my staff in R&D, a lot of delivery staff have gone way and beyond what we would normally do because you all, we've all had to, to face up to, to what the challenge that's, that's come our way. These are not normal times. Uh, again, I'm really proud of all the R&D staff and, and the way they've set about uh, trying to move things forward in as rapid and professional way as possible without cutting too many corners. At the end of the day, these treatments are our patients at the end. They can do harm as well as good. Uh, we do a lot of monitoring. We have a big team doing it. I've tried to avoid watching the COVID news every day because it doesn't change. I started off watching it every day. I always watch news night before anyway. I've actually watched a bit less of it because it's COVID everywhere. I miss the sport. I do miss that. I'm a bit of a, an armchair sportsman. 
Uh, I missed the cricket. Usually go to the cricket a bit. That hasn't happened. I've got tickets for the Lions tour next year. That better go ahead. Let's so I'm slightly so. holding on to that. If we're still here next summer, I will be disappointed. So the goal is to get to the Lions tour next year and to beat the South Africans. A, a worthy goal. I mean, I was really disappointed that the uh, Wales tour of New Zealand was just cancelled in the last couple of weeks, which is uh, yeah. crying shit. I mean, it would have been a th- it would have been a three three nil whitewash in favour of the All Blacks, but I still probably would have gotten up in the middle of the night to watch it. Oh, oh absolutely. And uh, you, you say that, but you know, New Zealand have their off days. Wales on their day are a fabulous, fabulous side. I mean, of course, we're all missing that. I mean. Part again with the COVID, coming out COVID wrapped up before the Autumn Internationals. I mean, it's not the biggest priority, but it's a sign of getting back to normal. In Wales, that return to normality is, is a big, big thing. We're a big social animal, is Wales. We like going out. Uh, they're very proud of their sports, and rightly so. Tour de France, Gareth Thomas, the cycling, you know, Gareth Bale. We've, we've been starved of all of this, which has made it very, very hard. Yeah, that's one of the joys of gardening. You know, something's happens every day in gardening. Uh, usually the slugs are eating it. Uh, but in case they've grown, in case something's flowered, yeah, there, there's always something to discover which is slightly new in your garden. So it is a, it is a bit of distraction, but I'm looking forward to getting back to the sport. Yeah, it's one of those things that kind of connects people, isn't it? And I think out of everything that the lockdown measures have deprived us of is is that sense of communal emotion you know whether it's exhilaration or despair it's not something that we we're having anymore everyone's kind of alone not alone but experiencing things in isolation a typical weekend for myself and my wife is going out bird watching somewhere in south wales finishing at the pub for a bit of grub and going home that's the thing i've really missed i do like bird watching thanks i've got a garden uh, and I feed the birds an awful lot. So we have all sorts in the garden, but there's nothing quite like going out, wandering through the Welsh countryside, seeing a few birds, uh, pretending you've seen a few more, hearing a few more, ending up at the pub, bit of a bit of a bite to eat, a decent single pint, get in the car and come home. It's all very relaxing. I really do miss that. It's the thing I miss most actually mm. uh, about the COVID and the lockdown. Uh, and I'm looking forward to actually getting back out there when uh, eventually we are released a bit. But it, it's not a job done. This is by far from over. Yes, yeah, and important to remember. So thank you so much, Chris, for taking time to talk to me today. And thank you for all the work that you guys are doing there. It's It sounds incredible and it's so heartening and it gives me so much hope to hear about it. And I really can't wait to read some of the results in the future. No, it's, an, it's an absolute privilege uh, and the staff have been absolutely wonderful. All the best for you. Take care. Thank you very much. Cheers now. See you later. Bye. Thanks again to Dr. Chris Fegan, the Clinical Director of Research and Development. In the next episode, I talk with Katie Palmer, the Programme Manager at FoodSense Wales, which is an organisation hosted by Cardiff and Vale University Health Board and Public Health Wales. Until then, my name is Bryn Kentish, and this was How Healthcare Happens. Thank you.